morning. How's everybody doing? Thank the Lord for AC. It's hot. Muy caliente in San Antonio. Ridiculous. Man, welcome to Life Point Church. Lots of great churches in San Antonio. Lots of great churches on this northwest side of town. And so if you're a first-time guest with us, man, we are so thrilled that you joined us today. So every, every summer we have this series, One Hit Wonder. And we have various speakers on our staff and in our church speak on a scripture or a season or something significant that's going on in their life at this time. And last week, Andy gave an incredible message on a four-letter word, work. Give it up for Andy. He really did a fantastic job. And if you missed that service, make sure that you check it out online at lifepointsa.com. But so over the last few weeks, I've been really thinking about what I wanted to speak about today, and, and, um, and I thought, you know, it's one-hit wonder, I want to do something that's, that's significant to my life, and uh, so I thought I'd share on something that had really impacted me, and I thought, man, nothing has impacted my life the way fatherhood has, has, has impacted my life, so I think I'll, I'll speak on the incredible responsibility that we have as, as fathers and what it looks like to be awake and aware of this incredible calling and a couple of days later, after I had decided to go that direction, my youngest, Finn, who's a year and a half, year, um, he's a great little kid. He's a one and a half years old, very busy. He's very busy. He's always got something going on. And he loves to dance. And so I was, I was watching him and um, supposedly on the couch. I was laying on the couch watching him. And he was doing his dancing. And this time he got up on a Lightning McQueen table. Um, like a little table about this tall and uh, started dancing on the table. And so I'm kind of watching him, but I'm kind of not really because I'm tired. And, um, and so he's dancing up there and he, he goes to the edge of the table and just bites it, breaks his arm, breaks his arm. My wife takes him to the emergency room, calls CPS on me. No, I'm just joking. But uh, all the day before we go to Colorado on vacation, like really just terrible, terrible timing. And so I thought, well, crap, I'm not going to speak on being a father. I think I screwed that one up pretty good. And then, then last Sunday, I was, I was asked repeatedly to go fill in as a worship leader at, at a church. It was a church that I've never been, in, been to, but I'm, I'm friends with the pastor, and I, I had, whenever he had called me, Early in, the, early in the week, I had told him that I, I couldn't do it initially. I wanted to, to come here to LifePoint, and then I had some commitments later that day. Um, but he kept calling me throughout the week saying, Jeremiah, really, I've got nobody this Sunday. If there's any way that you can make this work, I would really appreciate it. And so I know what that, that feels like being a, being a church that's starting out, and, and you've got team people that you need, and, and, uh, and, and he, was, he was short. And so I said, you know what, I will rearrange some things and, and I'll be there. And so I went into this beautiful, beautiful church in downtown San Antonio and had this massive pipe organ, which was just incredible. And it had rows and rows of, of pews and stained glass windows were, were all around. It was absolutely just a beautiful, beautiful place. And the church, they had recently started what they call the contemporary service which it turned out the difference between the traditional and the contemporary service was the pipe organ was turned off. They didn't, they didn't use it for this service. And, uh, and somehow me and my acoustic guitar, just me and my acoustic guitar made it the contemporary worship, the cutting edge service. 
And, uh, and so the sound man was super friendly. And, and, and whenever I show up, he meets me at the door and he's super friendly and he's helping me, helping me get stuff set up. And, and he lets me know that he's never done any sound before. This is his first time. I'm thinking, great, one of these situations. I love this. We're off to a great start. Things are, things are really going well. And, and then I, I go up to the stage and there's, man, the stage had like the softest, red carpet like it felt like it was like a little taste of heaven I feel like carpet like that's going to be in heaven it was so soft and um and and then so I'm setting up my stuff and I noticed this just massive box behind me it's a massive box just about the same length as a human body and and there's there's candles all around this box and there's flowers all around this box and I'm thinking that's a casket like what what kind of contemporary service is this that I just showed up for? And uh, I'm thinking, I thought this, I didn't realize I'm playing at a funeral this morning. I thought it was just a normal service. And so the, start, the service, it started at 11, and I was told that, as, you know, as soon as it's 11 o'clock to get up there and just jump right into worship. And so, so I got up on the stage, and I had my guitar, and I just started singing, this is amazing grace, and started singing it out. And then the sound man's in the back, and he just starts going like this. And I think that he has like a nervous twitch when he worships. And I'm just like, what, you, what is this guy doing? And, uh, and then he runs down to the stage real quick and he says, he says hey, we actually, we're actually going to start um, around 11.10 or 11.15. Methodist time is different. And I was like, okay, okay. And I said, um, man, aren't you, aren't you glad that we have a level of excellence here at LifePoint? Give it up for our team that worked so hard to make things function and flow and sound awesome. I really, but anyway, so, so I, I, I go down and then get off the stage and wait till 11, 10, 11, 15. And, uh, and then the, the place starts really filling up with the whole congregation. Everybody's dressed really nice, wearing black and white, and they're, they're sitting 20 rows plus back. And, and I'm thinking, okay, all right, I'm going to, I guess it's 11.15, I'm going to start worship, and I really feel like I'm at a funeral, but I'm going to sing about this amazing grace. So I get up there, this is amazing grace, and start, start really, really singing out, and I'm pouring sweat, I'm giving it all I have, and, and half the church is sitting down, and the other half were drinking their coffee and talking to the, to the person next to them. In fact, they were so far back that I actually almost just got off stage during worship just so I could find out what they were talking about or fi- figure out who had died. Um, and then the, the guest speaker, I don't know, like, I guess he was not very excited about this occasion or about my worship leading. And so the whole time he's just looking at his watch, looking at me, looking at his watch. He's like, God, man, I'm so ready for this to be over. And then the, the pastor that had asked me to show up, he, he didn't show up. He wasn't there at all. He didn't, I think he was in the box on the stage. He... <laughs> I haven't heard from him since. I don't know what happened. Um, but as I was packing up my stuff that day, as I was packing up and, and leaving, I had to rush out to an appointment. I had worked my day around this, and I had to rush out to the appointment. And I was thinking, man, I sh- probably should have been a little bit more firm about saying no. Not that it was a bad thing. It was a good thing, and it, I'm glad that I was able to help out. But I probably should have been more firm, firm on my no. I have the tendency of saying yes to too many things. I'm, I think a lot of us do that, but I, I have the tendency to say yes to too many things, things that might even be good things, but just things that aren't the most important things, and I should have been more firm on my no. It reminded me of a question that I heard in a series many years back, and it said, the question was this, if you had only 30 days to live, 
would you have said yes? Man, think about that. If you only had 30 days to live, would you have said yes? Who in here hates going to the doctor? Man, I, I hate going to the doctor. I hate hugs. I don't like hugging. The worship team knows this about me. I'm not a hugger. I don't like, I don't like to bring it in, buddy. You know, I'm, I'm not a hugger. But I hate going to the doctor, and I don't know what it is. I, I feel like every time I go that he's going to send me to the crazy house because I, get, I, get ner- I turn into MC Hammer, and I get shaky legs at like a physical. I get nervous, and I'm like, oh, I told you, homeboy, you can't touch this. Nah, 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 nah. I, I, can't, I cannot stand going to the doctor. It's the worst. But imagine that you go to the doctor for a routine appointment, for a physical, and it ends up being not routine at all. And the doctor, he tells you the life-shattering news that you have a disease, an illness, and it's in advanced stages and tells you at most that he thinks you have 30 days to live. What would you do if you were told that you had only one month to live? I think this would change you. I think your perspectives would change. I think your priorities would change. And I'm sure that the initial response would be absolute incredible shock. But I think once you get past that absolute shock, I think you, once you accept the reality that this is where life is going, I think that news, 30 days to live, it could be a positive and a profound impact on the days that you have ahead. I believe that we would intentionally, we would change some things, that we would radically change some things in our life and we would change the way that we live so that we could focus and experience the things that are the most important to us. I heard this concept about 10 years ago, which was based off a book called One Month, One Month to Live by a pastor named Kerry Shook, who's a pastor out of a church in Houston. And it was really a message that impacted my life, that shook me to my core. And I was, I was single at that time in life. I was single and mingling, but by no means was I committed. I had I'd been in a long-distance relationship, and a very off-and-on relationship for about 10 years. That's a long time. And she was living in paradise in Boulder, Colorado, and I was living here where it's hotter than heck. Man, aren't you glad I brought you here? Sorry. So after church that week, I was, I was doing what single guys do. I was sitting in a beanbag chair eating Cheetos, watching Netflix, and, and I was telling my friend about this message that I had heard at church, this one-month-to-live idea. And, and my buddy and I, we had some deep conversations that night about what we, what we would do and what we wouldn't do if we, had been given, if we had been given only 30 days to live. And some of the ideas that we had were ridiculous, but I told him, man, if I had only 30 days to live, I think I would man up and I would go and fly up to Colorado and I would put a ring on Gabby's finger. And he said, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. Don't be mad once you see that he won it. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, Beyonce. And he was like, seriously, man, you got to roll. You got to go. And so he went into my office, and right there he logged in and bought me a ticket to fly out to Colorado later that week. That's a good friend. And I didn't tell Gabby that I was coming. I, I, I knew that where she worked in Colorado, and so I, I called her work, and I arranged for her to be off. We hadn't talked in a little bit. But uh, I arranged for her to be off, and then I showed up with flowers in, in hand. I knocked on the door, and she opened the door, and I was ready to get serious, and she slapped the snot out of me, told me she was tired of my crap, and that I better get serious, or I better get to stepping. She didn't really do that. 
but that'd be a good story. So I told her I was ready that after 10 years of being flaky off and on that I was ready to get serious and that I had, and if I had only 30 days to live, that I would want them to be spent with her and that I was ready to get serious about our commitment. And so a few months later, man, she dropped everything and moved to San Antonio, to San Antonio. And that's a whole different, different story, man. She, she definitely took more risk on a flake like me than that really offered not a whole lot of security or certainty to her at that time. But a few months later, I did put a ring on it and I married the love of my life. And we've been married for almost nine years and we have two incredible boys, and I have a sweeter life than I ever thought. Give me a hand for that, because that's a good. Give my wife a hand for moving down here for an idiot. So if faced with the reality that you had only 30 days to live, you may or may not put a ring on it, but I do think you're certainly going to change some things to go after what means most, what is eternal, and what is most valuable. You're going to spend time with the ones that matter most, and that you love the most. And I think your heart's desires, if given 30 days to live, I think your heart's desires would be so crystal clear. And so the idea this morning is since none of us really know how long we really have here on earth, why not begin living that way now? Why not live today with an awareness of how short and precious this time really is? Because when your days are counting down, and they all are, you really want your days to count. Kerry Shook, in his book, One Month to Live, he said, if you knew you had one month to live, you would look at everything from a different perspective. Many of the things that you do now that seem so important, they would immediately become meaningless. And you would have total clarity about what matters most to you, and you wouldn't hesitate to be spontaneous and risk your heart. You wouldn't wait until tomorrow to do what you need to do today. And the way that you live that month would be the way that you wished you had lived your whole life. Man, I hope that we all have many, many, many more days, more months, more years, more decades, but none of us really know what tomorrow holds. What we do know is that life is short. Scripture notes the brevity of life in Psalms 39. It says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. Some of you look at your hand, you got small hands? I'm just joking. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is just a breath. And so with this concept of one month to live, I think there are a couple of thoughts that if we put into practice now, that they could allow us to experience our best life now, a life without regret, a life that is lived out to the fullest. And my first thought this morning is let's choose today to live passionately by turning our wins into nows. Let's turn our win into now. Many of us, we live with a win then mentality. When this happens, then this will happen. So much of my life, I know I've literally wasted away waiting for the perfect scenario, waiting for the perfect situation. When this happens, then I'll do this. When I have this much money in the bank, then I'll do this. One day when everything is just the way I want it to be, 
then I will fully engage and do what God is calling me to do. Maybe it's you, maybe it's a single person that's saying that one day when I get married, then life's gonna really matter. Or one day when we finally get out of debt, then we're gonna start to tithe. Or one day when my career is established and we're strong financially, then I'm gonna take time and go on vacation with my family and re-engage with my family. Or, Or one day when the kids are grown up and out of the house, then we'll start reinvesting in our marriage. But the problem is that then rarely comes. And so I don't know what your when-then scenario is, but let's be men and women that live passionately by turning our wins, thens into right nows and going after the things that we know that God has put on our hearts to do. I know I can be so goal-oriented and so driven and focused that I can miss life in the moment, that I can miss out on the things that are going on in, in my house, with my wife, with my kids. I know my mind that it can be so consumed thinking about the next project or goal or deal, then the next thing that needs to be accomplished that I forget to live in this moment. My wife, my wife reminds me of this, that I can forget to be present, that I forget to be all there. And I'm sure I'm not the only man that has been hearing that in their life. And so, Father, man, Lord, help us, help us to disengage from the seemingly urgent and focus on what is most important. Father, help us to focus in on our kids, our wife, our husbands, our friends, the coworkers, the people closest to us, and start living and loving right now. Psalms 118, verse 24, we've all heard this verse. It says, this is the day, not tomorrow. This is the day that the Lord has made. And because of that, I'm going to rejoice not in what tomorrow may bring, but in this moment. Because Proverbs 27, it says, do not ever, ever boast about tomorrow because you don't know what a day will bring forth. We've got to embrace these moments. We've got to celebrate this heartbeat, this date. Be all there. And this is the day that the Lord has made. Let's turn our wins into now and turn our intentions into actions. James 4, 13 through 17, it says, look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we will stay there a year and we will do business there and we'll make a profit. How do you know what your life will be tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here for a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is the Lord, if the Lord wants us to, We will live and do this or we'll do that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. That scripture will really get to you. It says anyone who knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it, what do they do? The scripture says that they sin. And man, I know I'm guilty of this. I've definitely not gotten this one right all too often. I think the majority of us would agree that we know what we need to do, what we need to make right. We know what we need to restore, but too often we don't do it. And so my prayer for us today is, Lord, help us to turn our intentions into actions. And the second thought is that we would recognize how brief our time is and that we would choose today to fight for peace, and to love like we've never been hurt before. 
I love to read famous quotes. There's one by Alfred Tennyson. It says, it is better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. Another quote by Francis Bacon says, knowledge is power. Alexander Pope said, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Maybe you've heard this quote, God helps those that helps themselves. How many of you thought that was in the book of Psalms? It wasn't. That was actually Ben Franklin. So Jensen Franklin, he's a pastor out of Atlanta, Georgia. He wrote this awesome book called Love Like You've Never Been Hurt. And it was taken from a quote that came from a baseball player named Leroy Satchel Page. He was the first African-American pitcher in the American League, and he played 20 years of baseball. And Leroy, he played baseball in a time when he was the only black man on the field that was pitching, and he was criticized. They would yell racial slurs at the sta- from the stands at him. But there is a story that told about this guy's amazing athleticism. There was a team that attempted to humiliate him, and they lined up their four best batters right out of the gate to go get him. And normally you would go three, and then you would try to get the bases loaded, and then you would put your best batter up to hit it hard and get everybody to home plate. But, but to try and intimidate this guy, the opposing team took their four best batters, and they put him up to try and humiliate Mr. Page. And before Satchel Page, before he threw his first pitch, he hollered out to the outfield to go and sit in the dugout. And then he told his baseman on first, second, and third base, he told them to sit down on the bases. I love that confidence that he had. And he went on to pitch against those four professional baseball players, and he struck every one of them out. He had some famous pitches. He had one of them that was called the B-ball. Another one was called the bat dodger. Another one was called the long tom. But his most famous pitch was called the hesitation pitch. And it was an awkward, weird-looking stance. And what he would do is he would freeze in a certain position, and it would throw off the batter's timing and rhythm, and that's how he struck each one of those guys out. Leroy was also known for some really incredible quotes. One of them was, if you want to be a good pitcher, keep the ball off the fat part of the bat, which makes a lot of sense. He's also given credits for for quotes, work like you don't need the money and dance like nobody's watching. He was asked in an interview how he felt when he was attacked and whenever racial slurs were thrown at him from people screaming in the stands. And the interview asked him, "How, how do you feel about that? How do you deal with that? And he said, you've got to love like you've never been hurt. I love that. You've got to love like you've never been hurt. Because sooner or later, everyone's going to suffer hurt, right? It's going to happen. You're going to get rejected. You're going to get let down. You're going to be talked about. You're going to have conflict with somebody, probably someone that you absolutely love. You're going to get stabbed in the back. Mark Twain, he said, if you find a dog on the side of the road that's hurt, that's starving, that's mangy, that's dirty, that's dying, and you feed that dog and you take it home and groom it and nurture it back to health, he said, that dog will never bite you. But he, didn't, he went on to say, he said, that's the difference between a human being and a dog. Because many times the people that we love the most, the people that we've invested in the most, the people that we're closest to, will be the ones that can hurt us the deepest. 
And Jesus had a famous quote in Matthew 17, offense must come. It's going to happen. We are going to be offended. We are going to experience conflict with somebody. It's probably somebody that you love. You know, anybody can, can, things can be good as long as we're all on the same page. We all have the same viewpoint, same theology, same lifestyle, then all is good. But conflict will come. And we've got to decide when conflict comes, I'm going to love like I've never been hurt before. It's going to happen. You're going to get offended. You're going to get wounded. Maybe even with someone that you work with right now, somebody's going to betray, but let's rise up and let's love like we've never been hurt before. Moses, he wanted to set God's people free, but he failed. He failed miserably and ended up for 40 years in the desert. And he had four decades to think about how he had been treated. And then God comes in a burning bush and he says, go back to those same people and set them free. And Moses could have said, no way, no way. I, bit, I, t- I pet that dog once and it bit me. But he said, I don't want to go back there. But God said, go back and love like you've never been hurt. And Moses went back and he went back and set a nation free. And David, he had a father who didn't believe in him. He had brothers who made fun of him, belittled him. He had a wife who put him down and mocked his worship. He had a son named Absalom who broke his heart. He had a father-in-law who tried to kill him. Makes me love my father-in-law. And I mean, he thought your family was jacked up. This guy had some stuff going on. And David, he could have chose to let those things kill him, but David chose to love like he had never been hurt. And he went on to defeat massive giants in his life and is known as a man after God's own heart. So when we think about the brevity of life, we've got to decide, I'm not going to get bitter. I'm not going to be mean. I'm not going to get angry. Regardless of what is done to me, what, regardless of what you do to me, I'm going to love like I've never been hurt. Jesus, man, a perfect example. Jesus was afflicted, beaten, wounded, bruised internally and externally. And he, he didn't wait until we asked for forgiveness. But he made a decision because Forgiveness is just that. Forgiveness is a decision, a decision, not an emotion. It's a choice, a choice that can rewrite our future. And so much of our Christian walk is about that. It's about a journey in forgiveness. And Jesus up there hanging on the cross, he looked down and he said, Father, forgive them. I'm going to love them like I've never been hurt. These nails, these stripes, this pain in my body, I'm going to love these people who did it to me. I'm going to love them like I've never been hurt before. The other day I was talking to a contractor that was doing some work for me and he was telling, we were talking about family and I was introducing him to my boys and, and we were talking about, about life and I asked him if he had any kids and, uh, and he said, yeah, I've got, I've got some kids and, and uh, he said, I've got kids though that I haven't seen them in years. We actually haven't spoken in years. He said, we had a conflict and we don't, we don't talk anymore. We don't see eye to eye. I have grandchildren that I've never met. And I'm thinking, man, that is so sad that this guy is in this situation. But then I started thinking about my family and thinking about friends' families and, and, and people, people, I'm sure, in this church. And I'm like, man, we all have, well, a lot of us have, a lot of families are like armpits. They're just jacked up and stinky. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it is what it is. But I, I, I think so many of us, we have families and relationships that are really in similar messes that we forget what it is to love one another. And I've seen it, I've experienced it in my life, and I've been guilty of this, man. We, we see brothers 
taking brothers to court, parents who are estranged from their own children, parents saying that my kids have chosen to live a life that I just don't agree with, and so uh, they're going to go do their own thing, and I'm just going to cut them off. We, 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 we have family that live across the town that we never make any phone calls to because there was conflict in the family. And I'm guilty of this in my own life, but nothing, I don't think anything could be further from what God has called us to do. Some, sometimes, I don't know why it is, but when we have conflict, we, we just write people off. But in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul said that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. As Christ followers, we have been given this ministry of reconciling, of making things right. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through, through 20, it says, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and we got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now, we look inside and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start. They're created new. The old life is gone and a new life begins. All this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him. And then he called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of our sins. And now God has given us, you and me, the task of telling everyone of what he is doing. We are Christ's representatives. And God uses us to persuade men and women to, listen to this, drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. Man, that's what we're called to do, to reconcile, to rise above, to drop our differences and to make things right. Who in here loves ketchup? I love ketchup. I love ketchup. Remember that, what movie was that? Milk was a bad choice. What was I, what was that? Yeah, yeah, Ron Burgundy. That was, that's disgusting. Um, but I love, I love ketchup. I really do. Forgiveness, man, forgiveness is like this right here. It's, it's, it's hard to open. It's hard to open. Have you ever had these in, at the table and it's really hard to open? But once you open it, it doesn't just come out because the contents are under pressure. And that's the first step of forgiveness is we've got to be open to it. The first step of reconciliation is, is speaking to that aunt, speaking to that uncle or that brother or that sister, that grandparent, that mother, that father, that person that's really ticked us off, that's really offended us, is we have to be open to it. People who love ketchup, they know that if you have a classic Heinz 57 bottle, that the, the number 57 is all around the rim of the bottle. And it won't gush out if you start tapping on those 57s, but if you keep tapping on those 57s, slowly but surely, the ketchup is going to start coming out. Slowly but sh surely, that ketchup is not gonna, is gonna start, coming, start coming out. And that's how forgiveness works. First, we open up and we say, I'm open to it. I'm open to reconciliation. I'm open to healing. And if you open up and then you stop holding a grudge and if you start tapping and if you stop demanding an answer and you keep on tapping and you stop hating and you just keep tapping and it may take a lifetime of tapping but sometimes it's going to take some of the worst things done to us that are going to bring out 
the best stuff in us. And if, if faced with the reality that you had 30 days to live, I think you would want to change some things right now. I think you would want to start tapping. Wouldn't you want that? And wouldn't you want to make some things right? Wouldn't you go after recon reconciliation? Wouldn't you go after getting over some past hurts? Wouldn't you choose to fight for peace? And wouldn't you choose to love like you had never been hurt before? And so as a church, man, that's our prayer, that, that we would start turning our intentions into actions and that we would start tapping now, that we would send out a card and just tap that family member that's done us wrong, that we would shoot out a text, Merry Christmas, and just tap, send another tap and keep tapping, just like Happy Gilmore, just tap it in, just tap, tap it in. They may keep you blocked on Facebook, but just keep tapping. Just keep tapping. Just give, keep giving them some love because forgiveness isn't about keeping score. Reconciliation, it's not about keeping score. It's about losing count. It's about tapping and keeping on forgiving. And you don't forgive once or twice or seven times, but Scripture says 70 times, seven times, 490 times in one day. Keep tapping and do what you can do to be at peace and keep on tapping because life is too short. Relationships are too valuable. Let's be men and women that go after reconciliation. When your days are counting down, you really want your days to count. Let's pray this morning. God, it's so obvious, man. It's so obvious how off track I get, how off track my priorities get. And God, I know I get, I get way too focused on stuff that just doesn't matter. Stuff that seems so urgent right now, but stuff that ultimately is not important. And Father, I, I pray that you would forgive me for allowing my treasure to be in things that just don't matter. Father, I pray that you would help me to reevaluate and change my priorities to the things that matter most and that my focus, that it would begin to shift from the urgent to the important. Father, I pray that we would remember just how brief our time on earth really is and that it would change the way we live our days. Father, I pray as a church that we would turn our wins into nows and that we would turn our intentions into actions. Father, and that we would begin to go after the things that you have placed in our hearts to do and not wait for a day that might not ever come. Father, I pray that we would have an openness, just like the bottle of ketchup, that we would open up to this idea of reconciliation. Father, I pray that, that families would reconcile, that families would hug again, Father, that they would eat together, that they would talk on the phone again, that they would begin to tap and that they would keep tapping and love one another and that we would love like we've never been hurt because exact, that's exactly, Father, that's exactly what you did for us. We, I love this song, this reckless love song. Father, I thank you that there's no wall that you won't kick down to come after us. Father, I thank you that there's no shadow that you won't light up to come after us, that there's no mountain that you won't climb up
to get to us. Father, there's no lie that you won't tear down to get to us. And Father, I know that, that some of us, we've, we've got some stuff in our, in our lives, some stuff in our families, maybe some walls that need to be kicked down, Father. We've got some lies maybe in our families that need to be broken down. We've got some things that are in hiding that need to be lit up in our families. And Father, I pray that, I pray that you would stir in us a heart for reconciliation. Father, that, that's, that's the kind of God that you are, a reckless, loving God, giving your all in your love for us. And Father, I pray that we would recognize that our time is brief and that we would begin to love the way that you love, that we would go to extreme measures to love those closest to us. We love you. Let's sing.